I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett, and you're listening to Writers on Writing. My guest today is Margot Dwayhe, Ph.D., an American writer whose works include Scranton Lace, published by Clemson University Press, Girls Like You, Clemson University Press, a Lambda Literary Award finalist, Bandit Queen, The Runaway Story of Belle Starr, and the chapbook I Would Ruby If I Could, published by Factory Hollow Press. She's a co-editor of the Cambridge University Press Elements in Crime narrative series and the editor-advisor of Northern New England Review. Her writing has been featured in PBS NewsHour, the Wisconsin Review, Colorado Review, and so many more. She's here today to talk about Scorched Grace, uh, Gillian Flynn Books, 2023. It's uh, Flynn's first imprint um, under the publisher Zando. Before we bring her on, a quick reminder that the show is on Patreon, and if you've been listening for a while and have found these interviews useful in any way, please consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash writersonwriting and becoming a supporter. Contributing any amount at all will help us to continue doing what we've been doing for the past, oh, 23 years, 24, I've lost track. In any case, we appreciate every penny, and we thank you, our loyal listeners and patrons. On the show, Margot and I spoke about going deep into character, why she chose a nun as a protagonist, writing dialogue, backstory, and so much more. Let's bring her on. I am so glad to talk to you. I loved Scorched Grace and cannot wait to hear, well, so much about it. Um, Let's begin with you talking about the book, how it came about, and then maybe do a little reading. Absolutely. And thank you so much for having me. It really is a pleasure and an honor. Scorched Grace is the result of a lifelong passion and obsession with mysteries. I wrote um, poetry almost exclusively for about 12, 15, maybe between 12 and 15 years. There was always this parallel interest that I had as both a reader a writer and a viewer. There was just this immersive quality about a mystery I couldn't shake. And I merged those worlds in Scorched Grace, which is my take on a hard-boiled style of mystery, where there's a voice-driven experience. You have an investigator who is somewhat tough, hard-living, very often from that lineage of the wisecracking lone wolf on the mean streets, I've always loved that, the noir sensibilities of high contrast. And when you admit that the world is broken, but it's still worth the fight, it's still worth fighting for. So writers like Raymond Chandler, Dashiell Hammett, Spillane, Ross McDonald, and then Sue Grafton, Walter Mosley, Sarah Paretsky, that that's my playground in terms of mysteries. I love those types of stories and the hard-boiled inspired tale. So I wanted to bring something fresh and different to that experience. Of course, casting the lone wolf as a tatted up, 
gold-toothed young nun named Sister Holiday, who fancies herself a bit of an inheritor of, of Chandler. And she used to escape into those mystery books when the character was a kid herself. And I wanted to honor the mystery genre while also teasing it and testing its boundaries quite a bit. Hmm. Well, I'd love to hear you read. Thank you. I'd, I'd love to share some. So just to set it up a little bit, this is the first chapter of the book and it's told from Sister Holiday's perspective. So it's a first person perspective. And so the reader quite immediately is in Sister Holiday's chokehold and you get a sense of the, the obsessions, the interests, the contradictions that fuel this character. And she's, she's certainly unusual in her convent um, of four nuns in New Orleans. So I'll begin with uh, close to the beginning, a passage where she's sharing about um, some of her daily life at the convent. Pain is evidence of growth. The ache means we're changing and everyone is capable of change, even me. But that doesn't mean I always got it right. Whenever I was punished, my task was to clean the massive stained glass windows of the church. I'd climb up on a rickety ladder and shine the glass, pane by intricate pane. Eleven in total, bold blue, coral, fern green, and my favorite, sanguine, the color of sacred wine, the living red of a singing tongue during vespers. Our stained glass told stories from the Old and New Testaments, Moses akimbo parting the cerulean sea, the evangelists, Matthew is a winged man, Mark is a lion, Luke a flying ox, and John an eagle, the slow motion trauma of the stations of the cross, adoring angels floating above the manger during the birth of Christ, our Lord, holding luminous harps like jewels in their small hands, so beautiful it hurt to look sometimes like watching people in church as they kneel and pray, howl and lose balance. I see people at their absolute lowest. I hear people beg God and Mary and Jesus for second chances. One planet away from their spouses or kids next to them in the pew, or so alone they've been to ghosts. We're always there, us nuns, to witness, to hold space for miracles, in the terror, in the boredom in the wretched gore of life, to take it in, watch your hands tremble, validate your questions, honor your pain. You never see us seeing you. Nuns are slippery like that. Hmm. Thank you. It's wonderful. You, you went so deeply into Sister Holiday's character. How did you do that? <laughs> I mean, she is so on the page and um, talk about coming up with her character and how you did that. That sleuth figure. So whether they're the detective within an authority, um, you know, an authority figure or a amateur sleuth or the private eye, that character has to be, they have to have voltage. They have to, in my opinion, make you want to fall in love with them or have a magnetism with them or despise them. There just has to be something very compelling about the sleuth. 
So knowing that and having that in mind, I wanted to create a character who doesn't quite make sense to her bandmates and her Riot Girl band back in Brooklyn, her new sisters, the sisters of the Sublime Blood Order. People think they, they look at her and they make a snap judgment about who she is. And she's often none of those things. So I wanted a character who surprises herself constantly. And that really meant crafting a, and getting a kind of a fingertip feel around a character's psyche. So her fears, her obsessions, her daydreams without losing a propulsive momentum that I think is necessary in, in a mystery, giving it a tempo and thinking through well, why would this character become so obsessed with solving this case? Yes, of course, this tragedy happened in her new parish, but what is it about her life, her backstory, and those granularities that keep her connected and keep her also from relaxing into herself? And she's a hot mess, not for the sake of the mess, though, for the sake of her humanity. And I also really wanted to create a noir signature here with this book where all of the characters are actually fallen in order to explore how we get up. So I, that's what I personally really enjoy about not just crime fiction, but noir and hard-boiled specifically is and this character has faced so much in her life and you see it there fueling her guiding her, sometimes misguiding her too. So, you know, from her tattoos to the black gloves and black neckerchief that her mother superior requires her to wear, this character, I, I wanted to feel really just like a surprise to herself, but also someone that you would want to follow into a burning building. So how much did you know going in? I mean, did did she develop as you wrote? Um... Yes, yes, absolutely. And I feel like with my approach to mysteries is one of laying a baseline so that then I can improvise. So I started with the end and then working backwards. So with the mood, the tone, and there was a lot of feeling my way through the dark because certain plot points can be there, but then one one action, one you know snap judgment, or you know one quick and unexpected reaction can set a chain of events. So I feel like I again wanted to create some space for improvisation, for channeling the the muse as I like to do in poetry and leaving room for discovery. So she did change as I worked more deeply in, in the, this manuscript. And this is the first book of a trilogy. So keeping that in mind, she has an arc in each book and the main characters all have arcs in, in the whole trilogy. Did you know it was gonna be a trilogy? I did. I'm I start. Yeah, I did. I. I just, it was there. It was just something that was part of the interest that I have and that kind of um, beautiful world building that I so enjoy with a detective series like Raymond Chandler's Marlowe or even the Agatha Christie characters that so many of us know and love like Poirot and Marple. There's just a wonder 
wonderment of riches when you know you have you can experience them again and again. And that's also why I do want them to continually my characters to really surprise each other and surprise themselves. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, I, I can't tell you how much I I loved your book. I think it's um I think for me it's a mystery, but the writing is more literary. Yeah. <laughs> and I can see why Jillian Flynn would pick it for her imprint. I think. You know, it's just, it's its own genre. Thank you. I, I'll i still never recover from the day that I heard that <laughs> Gillian Flynn, you know, the queen of domestic noir, actually read my book. I didn't realize she had, you know, turned her attention into, you know, to becoming a publisher to mm-hmm. help support a new crop of writers and uh, you know unknown writers without platforms which is me you know and I say this with a lot of love that and you know also pride but uh, you know I was essentially like a you know toiling away in obscurity with my own projects and different experimental works and studying the mystery genre but uh she I think she responded to the the language on the line level and she said, you know, recently that it's that the lyricism with darkness that appealed to her. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Just taking a big swing. I think, as we know from reading her books like Gone Girl and Sharp Objects, that Gillian Flynn likes to take big swings, and that she feels like this book really lines up with that. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, it sure does. And you know, now that you say you've spent a lot of time writing poetry i i see that in the writing you know right from the start it's always about more than just you know just what happened or what i mean you stay in scene right but the writing is more lyrical it's it's really interesting oh thank you thank you that means a lot i again i want to deliver a mystery that genre enthusiasts will pick up and love as well as folks who never read mysteries. Right, right, right. I wanted to keep, yeah, keep that pace, give give rhythm, you know, slow where we need to linger a little bit, but then fast and punchy and pacey where we need to propel forward. And I was always aware of that balance of kind of giving the wave and then the ghost wave, which is where the poetry comes in. The ghost wave? Mm-hmm. Say more about that. When you're standing on the shore and you're watching the the tides come in, you know, sometimes there's one primary wave, but very often there are these little waves or these little like, Mm. and it happens with rainbows too. Sometimes there's a little, Mm -hmm. little ghost rainbow that is part of the texture and it's part of the experience, but you don't even realize that you're seeing it. And that I think is really fun about bringing these poetic sensibilities and poetic moments into genre, into, into noir and into mystery. And, you know, when I was reading Edgar Allan Poe, that jumped out at me as well. You know, he's one of our foremost poets and his mysteries are terrific. They're very different than hard boiled, but there's some, some of those similar tensions and really delicious tensions at play. Mm. We have to talk about this cover. This is like the best cover ever. <laughs> it's glorious. It is just shattering. 
Man, <laughs> I love this cover. Did you love it? Did you love uh, it right away? I was startled. I never felt so instantaneously in love, kind of love at first sight. I, the email open is just this, felt miraculous to me. The fact that this extraordinary team, Evan Gaffney, who's the art director with Zando, Gillian Flynn Books, and Will Stahl, who does a lot of covers, very infamous covers, Michael Chabin and Stephen King, but he really wanted to uh, center that the stained glass motif in a way that plays also with iconography and the fact that, you know, Sister Holiday is sort of a noisy character and gives some of those nods to the smoky, tenebrious, shadowy covers of pulp and noir and, you know, of course, queer. So it's all there in the cover. And there are these puzzle pieces that are the stained glass panes. And uh, it's just, it really is to me a visual poem. It's remarkable. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's frameable. <laughs> Definitely. You know, it's frameable. Um, so the fire is the theme throughout the book. And um, later on, I mean, not a spoiler, we find out why, I mean, what happened to her in her mm -hmm. life. So, I mean, throughout, I'm looking for certain, at certain points, like, you know, where is the midpoint and what happens there? I mean, it's very plotted and talk about that because, you know, I think when we, or I don't know, what am I trying to say? You know, it's like genre plotting, you know, literary writers have a problem with that, but yeah. you have done something else here. And I think it is like, as you were saying, it's voice driven, it's literary. Um, it's noir. It's really a complex. You've you've done something really nicely complex. Oh, thank you, thank you so much. I'm. I really it's, it warms my heart to hear that uh, because again, I do. I find structure its own dare. You know, its own challenge. And as much as I love the kind of mono myths and hero's journey, and I do. You know, I love. I love when you can feel a sense of of movement and the rising action like even you know from Aristotle the three-act structure and what you're going to experience when you're either watching a tragedy or reading it and I did want to honor that as well as use some of those symbols like fire which speaks to the liturgical elements and as well as passion and grief and you know the the <laughs> without spoiling there's a real <laughs> chorus between the midpoint and the the end, you know, which is a new beginning. So I wanted to keep that the almost musicality of the the themes as part of the structure. So you see the kind of patterning with symbolism that signals where the structure really is without kind of being too declarative about it. There's there's just something that I really enjoy about shape, the shape of a piece, the shape of a poem, the shape of a book. Like I'll never forget when I first read The Big Sleep. It's this beautiful, sleek little sleeve of a short, short novel, and it just fits in your hand, or like The Great Gatsby or some of Octavia Butler's books. They're just 
there's such beautiful shapes of the stories and I wanted to honor that but give it some you know some unexpected flair and some patterning first person past tense single point of view how was that decided well, that's a great question. <laughs> you know, it, her voice has always been so clear to me. She speaks very differently than I do. And uh, again, there's that, there's this trope. And I, I do find tropes really interesting because they're almost this language that we can share in terms of the femme fatale or the, the mean streets, you know, when we're talking about certain mystery subgenres. And I wanted to honor that you know, I'm a lone wolf on the mean streets and get out of my way. But that the swagger and the brio is really just an armor for this kind of internal terror and vulnerability. So the first person felt really right for that kind of delivery. And she's, you know, kind of wacky. Like she's, she'll quote spiritual texts and then, you know, I want to be sedated by the Ramones. And <laughs> I wanted to create a kind of a transgressive interiority for a transgressive character. So first person just felt more like an immediate way to almost just whisper that in someone's ear from her or, you know, put them in a chokehold with her. First <laughs> and I love all, I, I, I think they're all amazing. And it's not, I don't necessarily have a favorite and I have written in a variety of points of view, but this just felt like it was her voice. And that had to be really crucial to the telling of the of the story, so that the narrative is driven by her. And then her name, Holiday. Yeah. Where did that come from? It's such went, a great name. Such okay. a great name. <laughs> well, I went to Catholic school until eighth grade, and I do remember the names of the nuns and some of them were, you know, Sister Nancy and Sister Anne. And then there were others that were more almost just felt like adventurous and or of a different world. And I wanted to create that insider outsider character. So someone in the world, but of a different world and someone who also carries with them the lineage of, you know, her parents for reasons that will become clear when readers dive in. And her mom names her holiday to as a reminder that every day should be a sacred holiday and everything's sacred. And so I wanted that to be both very close to her heart as well as kind of a ghost and sometimes pressure that she doesn't necessarily think she can live up to. Hmm. And then the title of the book. When did that come? When did Scorched Grace come? I, you know, it was a very early, they were all connected, you know, and almost mm. like poems have to have certain titles that can point to the, to the heart of a piece, whether subtly or, you know, more explicitly. So that the Scorched Grace is, is sort of her brand, as it were, and her way out, you know, that it's not grace, it's not glorious grace and luminous grace it's scorched grace and that is in both the inevitability as well as the gift and the kind of new beginning hmm. well i'm curious about well 
I'm curious about a lot of things, but like the Bible verses, there's a lot of Bible verses, of course, sprinkled throughout. And were they verses you already knew or what sort of research into, um, you know, the quotables and, and um, you know, what did you do? How did you do that? Yes, that's a good question too. You know, so often, there are these words and repeated, you know, phrases that are just part of, of everyday vernacular, whether people are religious or not, like, Holy Mary, mother of God, you know, <laughs> the way we ex exclaim as it were. And so while I, my family is, is very religious and I did grow up um, quite regularly attending service mass, you know, Catholic church, there was, you know, just like almost carrying DNA, these, some of these quotes were inside of me. And so there's this way of almost a repair, like a reparative experiences of creating a character who fully believes them and fights for them, mm -hmm. but doesn't push them on anyone else. And that was really important to me too, to, you know, and I did go back and read very closely looking for places, moments, um, resonance dissonance that felt like very sister holiday and you know this is a book the bible is a book we tell each other stories for comfort for inspiration and and i've seen a lot of hardship and damage come through some of those religious stories and i've also seen a lot of comfort too so i wanted to really hold that dichotomous tension there too so it doesn't have to be either or and you can be somewhere in between Mm. and some you know uh, some funny scenes I mean early on that that show us her character and one is that she you know kids at, at the school aren't allowed to smoke of course so when she catches kids smoking she takes their cigarettes and then she goes out to the alley <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean that says it all right yes yes which is why the cover is just so you know right. vital and fun yes i you know i really again wanted to to give this world teeth and to create a character who's very flawed and also feels like a human within this fictitious world so you know on one hand upholding <laughs> the school's rules and regulations and then in the very same moment breaking those rules <laughs> And so <laughs> I, I, I think for me as a reader, I like those moments where, where the sleuth or the protagonist or the characters fall off track a little bit and will they get back on, you know, it gives us like so much purchase into who they are. And especially if they're investigating something and they're on a quest, even if it's a doomed quest, it's like moments like that, that show their flaws, show their vulnerabilities, show their annoyance you know or because she certainly says a lot of things that I absolutely disagree with that you know having unlikable characters is really important hmm. well there's also a lot of backstory which often weighs a mystery down and I was thinking about that because um, yours doesn't and so I was looking at, you know, how you balance backstory with scene, you know, at writing in scene. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's kind of interesting because it just, again, one more thing that worked well, and maybe it's because her backstory is so interesting. 
thank you. I, I do think. Every and spare at the same time. You know, it's like you just, there's just the right amount. <laughs> well, I will thank my extraordinary editor, Serena Kamath, uh, Zando, Angelian, who just have that aerial view of just, you know, what, where to trim a little bit if needed and, you know, where to uh, stretch out. I think for me, I actually, I find myself so drawn to backstory I and mean, even just people. Like I love to know where people are from and, you know, the things that surround us. And, but I know it could be so deadly, especially in a mystery, it could be so decelerating. It could get saggy and baggy really quickly. And I do think each scene needs a goal. And really at the end of each chapter, there has to be some kind of polarity switch. Like it either goes from bad to worse or good to better. There needs to be some change so that we're not like the reader's not treading water. So keeping that in mind, writing these the her narrative past rather than in the narrative present, really wanted to deliver that. And I don't know, sometimes the more I think about it, I'm not for me, I want to think of it. It's like there is no, there's it's story, whether it's backstory or present story. So I try to keep the tonally very, very consistent. So are you are you more an overwriter and and yes, and, yeah. <laughs> well, I think you're. That's I, I want to say, lucky you. I think I wish I were an overwriter. You know. <laughs> You feel that you're, you yeah, I'm more of a minimalist. So I have to go in and expand, <laughs> you know, it, I think it would be better to write too much and cut back. And that's, oh gosh, that's where the editorial ecosystem mm -hmm. is just such a gift because you know, I can't see the back of my head. Like I either need a mirror or a phone or somebody, you know, to help me, tell me that my hair is like sticking up. And, like, it's sort of the same, I think, with when you're up so close with the book and, you know, this particular one is like 320 pages the, and it has its own shape and its own tempo. And when I overwrite, you know, it's just, I want to get it all, get it all out. So then it can be molded and tweaked and tightened or stretched out as needed. I think it's just that no compulsion or I also have hyper focus and I can go into a real state of of intense hyper focus and emerge like hours later with with a lot of writing hmm how nice <laughs> really I, I think that that rarely I really I don't know you know you probably turn everything off do you turn off your phone and turn off your email all of it all of yeah. it yeah yeah like, and then I try to feel what the characters feel. Every single thing that happens in Scorched Grace, I've felt psychically. And I, I don't want to hold back. I sort of want this to be like emotional, artistic kind of, you know, bloodbath for, for in a good way, <laughs> like visceral, viscera, you know. And so for that, there's just a real immersion that I do. And I, do try to keep it sustainable, but sometimes I'm really just wrung out like a rag the next day, but it's just part of this particular trilogy that is just all in. It's, it's a very ferocious experience, sometimes brutal. So, you know, did you also have kind of, I don't know, themes or 
kind of the story of each of the books before you started Scorch Grace? Yeah, I actually did. And again, I feel like that might just be like the happy accident of the poetry, mm-hmm. <laughs> the poetry thing. Like I knew I Scorch Grace wanted to be this interconnected experience of fire and burning and scorching and uh, rolling around, you know, in the ashes and and Blessed Water, which is second the second book. It's shorter. It's going to be around 260 pages um, and takes place over three days, uh, just one weekend, um, Good Friday, Saturday and Easter Sunday. Mm-hmm. So that, that was very much like an Aristotle's three act, which I do sort of put my own spin on and, and do the, some of the patterning and sort of querying it a little bit in terms of that structure. But I felt like I really didn't want each one to have its own color palette, its own thematic heartbeat, and explore a different big question amongst the the who done it or the why done it. Because I think mysteries tend to nest. I think they tend to cascade. It's not just a who done it. It's it's so much more, you know, all all in one. And I try to line that up so each book has feels like it's its own world and yet connected to the trilogy. So with Scorch Grace, how, how, what's your process? I mean, do you just, you have your basic outline or basic plot points? I mean, where you, where you hope to go and then, um, do you just barrel through or do you have to, does each chapter have to be the way you want it before you move on. What what what's your process with that? Yeah, I can. I really learned <laughs> I learned the hard way. For me personally, like as I mentioned, the, the whole laying the baseline just so I know what to write. You know, with with a long form piece like this, even if I don't know a lot, I still need enough to give me almost the coordinates, like my x y axis. So I outline with beats so chapter one you know what's the beat and and because I'm trying to redefine like conflict from a less patriarchal point of view like it this these books are not like sister holiday versus the big bad or sister holiday versus (laughs) jaws for example (laughs) you know even though I love movies and like that but it's more of these like friction and pain points that create you know these like difficult waters or fires you know that she gets burned by so there's that too with the outline it's like chapter one here's the beat what do we what do we learn that's new by the end of the chapter just that one thing so sometimes they can be very skeletal and I could scaffold them very skeletally but they I do need enough sinew and flesh in order to move forward it's because they're all you know it's it's tight with with mystery i try to keep it really tight kind of you know readers will they'll flag it they'll know because you're reading you're reading for clues you're scanning you know you're looking and that's what's also fun with the misdirection sleight of hand i must say because <laughs> you're sort of i'm trying to drop in you know taking some hedge hedged bets in terms of focus and where it can redirect a a reader's attention or 
hold a moment in order to advance the the mystery or deepen the mystery. Do you do you go directly to computer or do you start with tablets or notebooks? Or? I start with um, those old school. Um, you know, legal pads, the yellow legal pad. Yeah, yeah. Favorite way to start the overall sketch, you know, almost like a blueprint. Mm -hmm. And then from there, I've recently started using Scrivener. And so just having a spatial, almost like these little silos within the software. So when I try to get out a ton of information on the legal pad, so Again, like with blessed water specifically, there's, it is literally three acts, you know, there's Good Friday, Saturday and Easter Sunday. So act one, act two, act three. And I'm, I really was on a mission to create short chapters. Some of the, the longest chapter in blessed water is three or four pages. You know, Scorched Grace is a lot longer and that's, you know, what we're here to talk about today, but I just try to be really intentional about that when I am crafting, just to keep, again, keep it in the rhythm of the world of this particular book. So while the chapters are longer and more varied in Scorched Grace and Blessed Water, they're more consistent, more consistently brief. So these like, you're just really flying through them. Um, but I found like being more intentional with that was really helpful for me. And, you know, the really the hardest parts are giving it the lightning and really making each, each sentence sing, because, you know, again, this, <laughs> the blessing and the curse of being a poet is just like, every word is heavy lifting to me. There's, I don't, you know, I'm not trying to throw in scenes just for the way they sound. Like everything really is kind of working to, to some aim. Uh, even, you know, the metaphors of which there are many. So, yeah, the actual, you know, writing of the, the process is, is something that I, I try to be quite mindful about. So, because you did poetry for so long, where where was the point where you crossed over? I mean... Dialogue. <laughs> dialogue. Huh. I think so. I started writing longer poems, prose poems, which I uh -huh. do adore. And then there would just be these more, more dialogue-based poems. And even I would just start writing almost like all dialogue, poems of just all dialogue, because I feel so, I'm fascinated by the way we speak to one another in this world and like how certain, some of the things that people can say, their, their intention is exactly the opposite. And again, the wisecracks come in there, especially within noir and hard-boiled. Um, you know, you can ask an earnest question and get just this sarcastic response. <laughs> so that, you know, dialogue was really the bridge. I think that was my my gateway. Just continue and try to explore the way characters spark one another and magnetize one another and not just inevitably led to long form short stories and non novels. Well, that's interesting because um, something I wrote down earlier was something about your dialogue because it it worked so well. And I think it was um, Detective Riveau. 
Bravo. She's my favorite. And she, early on, when she asks a question, she ends it with the word question. <laughs> I was thinking about speech signatures and how you, that, you did that in this book too. I mean, this is a study and, you know, making characters sound different, right? Oh, yes. I mean, as much as I adore, you know, an Aaron Sorkin film where everything's at a high octane and all the characters are just rapid fire, I, I tend to just find that it's highly stylized and I do love that. Just for me, I did want the characters to have their own lexical DNA, something that you could not know the signposting and know that is Ravot. You know, she's leaning into that again, the what you know, laugh because it, I would cry uh, milieu. And so for her finding those ways to show her strength as well as her fear and and also her own contradiction. So yeah, ending um ending a statement with the question, the actual words question mark. So that holiday and some of the other characters like, huh, what's this woman all about? How do I read her? Because I think that's fascinating about, about people. And I do love how different people have their own style, their own way of speaking. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you read aloud? Do you read your work aloud? I do, I do. Probably not the whole book like at once, but mm -hmm. I do. And I feel certain things will just ring false when I read them out loud. And I tell this, I do teach, I teach creative writing and, and some of my students will say, why? Like, why would I, am I reading it? You'll be reading it. But there <laughs> is something really interesting that happens when you do read your own work. It's like, you can get away with less. There's this immediate alarm in me that goes off. Like, nope, nope, I missed that. <laughs> that did not land. What do I need to do here to redirect or, you know, to get this, the right balance? Um, and yeah, reading aloud is is so important. And again, if, if there's a narrator driving this, I wanted there to be that consistency and and texture. So I felt like reading aloud was was really important. And to try to keep things moving along, you know, even in the more poetic moments, just pace, keeping pace in mind. And what about when you have your drafts, early drafts? Do you have readers? Do you, and how, and if you do, like what, what sort of attention do you pay to what they say, right? If you have like a handful of readers. Yeah, I do. I send, I mean, I'll, my partner Bree is an incredible reader and she's a visual artist. She's a tremendous illustrator. And so with her, she, you know, I ask her like, what are you seeing in your mind? when you read this. And then with my agent, Laura, I ask her, is it working? <laughs> you know, is there, uh, how are we doing, you know, just in terms of like pace. And then my editor, I'll give the first draft and just say, you know, what, what, what are some of the narrative predicaments or problems and how can we solve them? Because they're all, you know, the, I think I was just really naive that you can have a really great, strong first draft and that's it. It's like, no, <laughs> there, I draft very heavily. And, and I do think the more voices, the better. I don't always agree, but then 
it's beautiful because then I can, I can really start to hone that self-trust, which I struggled with for a really long time. I would just hand something off and say like to my friend, Bill or Mark, do you like it? Okay, great. You know, or, oh, you hate <laughs> it? Okay. I'm shredding it. I'm, I'm done. I'm never going to look at that again. Mm-hmm. So I just had so, I had struggled with self, I still struggle with self-confidence and, you know, forum collaboration is a real gift to me because we can disagree. I can state my point. I can learn. And it's just like this really generative experience. And I don't know. I know a lot of writers work differently. We all have our own path, but for me, I've found it to be transformational actually getting early feedback because, you know, either way, it's like, I'm learning to trust my own ear, my own instincts as well as learn. And I love, I love, love getting notes. I know it's like kind of masochistic, but I love, I love getting notes. No, notes are great. <laughs> I love them. I love notes too. It's like, okay, what's All right. next? We got this. Yes. <laughs> yes. What's next? Um, so where did I read that? There's a TV series coming. Yes. There yeah. Is. <laughs> Uh, so at, at this moment, I am actually, all I can say is there's excellent, truly astonishing news coming very, very soon. There is a tremendous amount of interest in the adaptation and there've been a couple of changes. And let's just say that in like two weeks time, I'll have some great news to share. That's very That's great. That is so great. Yes. Did you ever think about film or tv as you were writing this you know did you study screenwriting i haven't i actually just started because as things progress i'll be sitting in a writer's room but i didn't honestly i didn't i you know felt like again that's just not my skill set it's not my bailiwick and there was the the movie in my mind was really the only thing that I was writing for and how to create that visual, you know, movement movement was, was really the extent of it. And I don't know, I, I felt like I wanted to keep that. It never even entered my mind, Barbara, really. Like <laughs> it, there's not much more to say. Like I never would have, I mean, not in my wildest dreams would I have ever imagined that Gillian Flynn would pick this up, you know, just cause it's so like different and, um, but I've always like, she's always been a kind of an icon for me as well as just, I love the gift of a page turner. And I think she gives us, she gives the world those gifts, but I never thought about, never thought about it, but now I'm thinking about it very closely <laughs> and studying it a little bit and, you know, reaching out for mentorship and, and investing in it. Yeah. Well, well, the, the company Stone Village produced Station Eleven, The Human Stain, Jane Got Her Gun. Yeah. I think, I think that's great news. Thanks. And I wanted to ask you with Gillian Flynn, what's your favorite novel? Sharp Objects. Mm-hmm. I just adore that world, the, the snark and the vulnerability and the ghosts and the mystery all in one deep sense of place that's just intoxicating and stories that ripple out and out and out, you know, that just insinuate themselves in your mind. Like I just, I could see her, you know, Camille Preaker and, 
and it's for as pacey as it is, you know, Gillian gives us those details that are those just fine, you know, the tags, like <laughs> in the first chapter, grabbing the sweater that's from a tag sale, you know, it just gives us so, it reveals mm-hmm. so much about character with this parsimony. And, but it's not, it's not, it doesn't feel lean like in a bad way it's just like she just gets that balance that I so love because I like a digression like sometimes I think digressions can lead to the heart (laughs) of a thing and so but keeping it on scene is crucial so it's like when folks strike that balance it's quite magical to me Hmm. yeah the art of the digression (laughs) (laughs) because it has to work with the story too right I mean it can be great on its own but but it has to work with the story precisely it has to carry you know it has to be just right you know shoulder to shoulder with whatever is the thing that is being said or the the beat or you know the the action quote unquote what what surrounds it you know has to be i think so considered so that it doesn't feel loaded down or decelerating but in fact the richness of it is what gives the lift so it's like oh it's almost paradoxical like you could have you know that that well-placed detail and the name of the book is escaping me right now but the russell banks book um oh gosh i'm blaming covid brain on it (laughs) (laughs) like where he describes knowing a place like the inside of his mouth you know people will say oh i know i know it like the back of my hand but this character his protagonist describes it like knowing the inside of your mouth like oh my god and you're there and it's intimate and because of that wonderful unique detail and that takes time that's why i think that time just letting something sit with an idea and watching a character knowing their psychology is i think that's where some of those magical discoveries happen you know, I wanted to ask you about your <laughs> your similes and metaphors. Yeah. Yeah. And now that I, you know, again, now that I know you're also a poet, I understand more why they're all so good in this book. Oh. I mean, you know, it's like I just well, I underlined a few. She was lighter than a rosary, oh. right? Because she's a nun, and you know, you wouldn't say she's lighter than a, I don't know some other profession or, or vocation, right? But everyone. So what I want to know is, are you just good at that? Or do you spend a lot of time coming up with the perfect simile or metaphor? Yeah. Well, thank you for saying that. That I feel like nothing quite hits the eject button like a cliched you know metaphor and sometimes they can be part of the delivery like for if you're trying to do a particular style it's like oh well that's actually part of the characters they're they're a little cheesy or they're a little cliche that's like part of it but for me I was trying to create a language within a language for Sister Holiday so you have a character who is sort of a composite of opposites to the outside world and so I wanted to create a narrator looking and making constantly surprising connections between unlike things, which is what 
metaphor and simile can do. And they also, for me, reframe the thing that you're comparing it to. So it's like, I'll never think of, you know, that, that Russell Banks, you know, like that character, the, mm-hmm. like that changed the way that I react to, to that character because you're getting a sense of their psychology and the way they see things and t- they're telling you through this retelling. So the metaphors are really, really vital. And I wanted to think almost more like, where does it go? So you, it's almost like a stone that you skip on the lake. So you got your first bounce and that could be like, okay, lighter than, you know, I'm trying to remember the exact passage or my psychology behind it, but like, you know, almost like lighter than a, than a wish or lighter than a prayer. So then you take that and spin it, spin it, spin it until it feels totally new. Okay. Rosary, but yet it speaks to the, you know, the clergy. So I take a lot of time with them and almost spin them like honeycombs, which is a metaphor, but like (laughs) I'm very, I feel very spatial and very kinetic when I write, like I move my hands a lot. I'm moving my hands right now. Nobody can see, but (laughs) when I'm writing that happens too. I'm like, you know, cause I want the reader to just be drenched, you know, in this worldview that feels so idiosyncratic to this particular speaker. And and I think that that, you know, her constantly making those connections between really unlike things, it's just her, it has to be her. Were you a writer as a little kid? I started writing poems when I was 12. <laughs> I've just found my little book. <laughs> <laughs> writing about school, writing about my dog. And, um, you know, I, I came to reading a little bit late. I think I am neurodiverse. I have ADHD and I didn't realize that until much later, like in life and recently in my forties. And I wanted to either be reading three books at once while running through the woods or do, <laughs> do the hyper-focus thing where I pick up a book and read it start to finish. Almost feels physically painful when I can't. And I want, if it's something that really is great for me to read, like I want to. So I had a weird relationship with reading as a kid writing though writing was it like I just felt so alive and you know very engaged with all of my brain cells and my heart it was very like the systems of the body just coming right into sync and I really feel like that can be it's such a gift in that way when art making can make you feel more like you Mm -hmm. so yeah what did you read Encyclopedia Brown, Nancy Drew. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I loved those mysteries. I loved that, you know, matching wits and trying to see if you can unlock it. Um, And poetry, actually. So, yeah, I, I remember my mom had this anthology just as like a table book. And I just, I think I liked the short forms, these little bursts of ideas or moments even if I didn't understand them, I thought they were like really interesting. And yeah, mostly uh, mysteries and poetry. Hey, there's a, there's a trend here. (laughs) And I didn't really get into more literary works until 
you know, much later really in high school. And then I sort of devoured, but I was always reading Sylvia Plath and E.E. E. Cummings and, you know, some modernist poets and postmodernists and then more contemporary poets. But then, then the whole world of novels, is just like, it just continues to unfold and unfold. Are you reading fiction when you're writing? Yes, I think they're really inextricably linked. I, I take days, I have to map them on my calendar to say, okay, Thursday's a reading day. <laughs> I can't do them both in the same day. Hmm. But I do, I think it's really, you know, one of my, um, when I was doing a PhD, one of the external examiners on my committee, his name is Neil McCaw, and he has some terrific scholarship about creative writing, of course, and craft. He has this really evocative and, and even controversial statement, which I love, which is that write, uh, reading is a form of writing. Because, and this is my own, you know, interpretation <laughs> of it. It's like if you're reading, you're inserting, you're intervening, you're filling out the sentence as it's like kind of going, you know, as it's progressing. And so there's this like engagement that's almost like the preamble to writing itself. And I, I for me, find that to be true. And so, if I have writer's block. I either go for a walk, you know, hike to, or walk to the river in Northampton or pick up a book, any book, science, the New Yorker, book of poetry, and it just, it unlocks something in me. Well, that, that was going to be my next question, actually. What, what do you do when you hit a wall? Yeah, and I think, again, like the writing is one of the people and even at times I myself would think that is just from the neck up, like it's just your head or your fingers moving across the keyboard or writing on the legal pad, but it really is physical. So when I am hitting a wall, I know that I need a break. And so I do try to just walk away, walk away from it and come back to it. Unless it's a flow state, you know, just sitting and wrestling something, it just doesn't work. Like I, I don't like what I've written. I'll inevitably, you know, save as and then save it in a folder. I try to save everything actually, but be very diligent and mindful about, you know, kind of jettisoning what I don't like putting it somewhere so that I, you know, go back and look at it. But very often. But are you, are you talking about a hard copy or keeping it on the computer somewhere? Computer. Computer. So how do you organize to find? <laughs> I have a file system that is like really, <laughs> I try to keep it very tidy. So I have <laughs> like Scorch Grace as a folder and then within that a folder, old files. And I just try to keep them, you know, mm -hmm. separate, but just keep it there. Mm -hmm. And um, if I don't see, like I have to see things and I have to have them labeled. So yeah, that's it's just there, but I know if I don't, if it's not really important, I don't need to be burdened with it visually. Well, before we go, I wonder if you have any advice um, for the writers listening. Oh, yes. <laughs> Keep writing. If something is being rejected or, you know, if if it's not, if you're unsubmittable and you're not finding the place of a short story, 
or the agent saw it on submit submission with it not getting any hits it's probably just not done and even if that means that the the little seed of it has to change in some form just can't speak more directly and passionately about keeping you know just staying with a project even if it means taking two years off you know and coming back to something so that writing is a muscle you know and it's something that we have to remind ourselves of the vulnerabilities that's why I try to be very transparent with interviews and when I talk to people it's like writing is really hard it's lonely it can be so you know, self-sabotaging in some ways. And it's also life-giving and euphoric and blissful and essential for me. I feel like it's just who I am. And that doesn't mean that we can't, you know, lean on each other and create a, create supportive groups. So besides not giving up and continue to ask for notes and reread things with fresh eyes after a couple months or years, and really be kind of bracingly honest with ourselves about the work too, which can be hard. Then the second thing I would say, supportive community, group, a writer's group, maybe you meet once a month on Zoom. Maybe it's more informally and just say, oh, I haven't, you know, I'm working on something and I just, I feel a kind of way about it. Would you take a look and trade? So whether it's like every week, every month, or just more informally, knowing that there's a supportive community is, is truly, it's been the lifeblood for me too. You know, I think I saw that you're involved with Sisters in Crime. Yes, I love and them. As am I. And I was curious how it's helped you along, how Sisters in Crime have. The Sisters in Crime breakfast at VoucherCon, just like in the coffee line at the hotel, kind of just griping <laughs> about our ups and downs. It just makes me feel real. It makes me feel seen. We all have vulnerabilities. We're all working through things. It just like a group like that, where we're working on mysteries or crime, you know, crime, and that we get it and we know certain, we have vocabularies in common and can ask each other for support or say, oh, you know, I just don't like, I'm working on something weird, you know, do you have any feedback or anything like that? It's just the community aspect is great. And, you know, you, I think that can help make a writing practice sustainable. So even if you don't go to the mystery conventions or attend the, you know, New England Crime Bake, or the, the places where Sisters in Crime table, like the Boston Book Fair, just getting the emails, the webinars, they're very fun. And I highly recommend it for folks that are working in genre or want to, you know, dip the toes in the water. Such a supportive community, very collaborative, not competitive, and, and just really wonderful. Founded by one of my heroes, Sarah Paretsky. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Great. Just great. Yeah, yeah. And there are chapters all over. And, um, you know, if you go to sistersincrime.org, you can find a chapter probably near to where you live. Um, exactly. And they give out grants, you know, academic grants mm -hmm. and prizes, just wonderful resources. Really. And VoucherCon is going to be in San Diego this year. Are you going to be there? Absolutely. I'm so right. excited about it. I'd I'll love see you there. 
Yes, I would love that. We'll we'll stand in the coffee line together. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for uh, being being with me on Writers and Writing, and thank you so much for Scorched Grace. Really, thank you for writing it. Thank you for reading it and for just being in community with me. It means so much, and I love the podcast. Great honor for me. Thanks to all of you for loving books and for taking the time to listen. And a huge thanks to our Patreon supporters. Thank you also to Travis Barrett, who does our music design and has an album's worth of typewriter music on Spotify called Just My Type. If you want to get in touch with me, email me at penonfire at earthlink.net. My website is penonfire.com. Marie Stone is at mariestone at gmail.com. And Travis Barrett is at travisbarrettcreative at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. And in the meantime, remember to stay in the chair. Thank you.